we had a load of fun. I wasn't on a team yet, so I kind of helped out here. We met and we worshipped uh, and we like made a plan and then we head out. And then I went to, uh, to the park to see what was going on, went, walked into Joy Cafe and I immediately got dragged. And they're like, Johnny, you know how to make coffee. So they were kind of down under and then I didn't know what I was going to do. Three hours later, I was still churning out flat whites and stuff. Um, so I got into it and it was a, it was a whole load of fun. Um, yeah, it was beautiful, wasn't it? It was such a good buzz. A lot of people, uh, the f- shout out to Karina and the face painters. You guys were there for a long time. <laughs> Um, but there was just a, an, an amazing sense of family and togetherness. Um, yeah, it was amazing. But yeah, as John said, uh, we're in the book of Malachi, and I love to go through a whole book of the Bible. I love it, you know, when we preach in different ways, but I really love going through an entire book of the Bible so that we get all the context, we get the whole uh, narrative, where it sits in Scripture. Uh, and so if you've missed a bit uh, or you haven't been here for a few weeks, uh, let me remind you where we are in the story. Uh, so Malachi was a prophet or a spokesperson, and he w- it was his job to convey God's message to God's people. And at this point in the story, uh, Israel had been in exile in Babylon, and it was a time where they were subjected to the worldviews and beliefs of a nation that loved uh, idols and different gods. It was an awful time, uh, and they were captives far away from their home uh, and not living life as God had asked them. Eventually, though, they were able to return to the promised land where you'd think that after the trauma of exile, uh, things would be great, but in reality, they were worse than they'd ever been. They'd brought back some of that Babylonian mindset with them, and they were compromising God's way of life pretty much on all fronts. We see uh, that they were doubting God's love and faithfulness to them, that their priests were cutting corners and giving substandard offerings to God. People were divorcing their spouses to remarry foreigners and adopting their gods instead of holding true to our God. They were disillusioned about the evil and injustice they saw in the world without confronting the injustices happening in their own hearts and communities. They'd made it. They'd finally come back to the promised land, and everything should have been amazing, but it wasn't. Now, if you're familiar with the narrative of the Old Testament, you'll know that this isn't anything new. The Old Testament spans roughly 1,500 years And for millennia, it tells the same story. Time and time again, the people of God are found wandering from him and his ways. There are smatterings of faithfulness and a few high points, but ultimately, the sat-nav of the human heart always seems to reroute to faithlessness instead of faithfulness. But we know uh, that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding, in steadfast love. And as uh, Johnny spoke uh, last week, he's righteous and he's just. His ways are higher than ours and he graciously calls us to return. And that's where we find ourselves today in Malachi with God confronting the wickedness of the Israelites and calling them to return. So why don't you grab your Bible Uh, or your phone, and we're going to read. I've invited uh, a good friend of mine, Johnny. He's going to read the passage to us. This is just really an excuse for you to meet a friend of mine. He's just moved. So why don't we welcome Johnny? (laughs) 
Malachi 3, verse 6 to 12. I am the Lord, and I do not change. That is why you, the descendants of Jacob, are not already destroyed. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you ask, how can we ever return when we've never gone away? Should people cheat God? Yeah, you've cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? Uh, When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me out the tithes and the offerings due to me. You are under a curse. If your whole nation has been cheating me, bring all the tithes to the storehouses so there will be enough food in my temple. And if you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the window of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you will not have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from the insects and the diseases. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you at your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Awesome. Thanks. Johnny, I've stitched you up because I actually I want to pray for you as well. But wasn't that amazing? Do you think Johnny should do an audio book? That was like. <laughs> anyway, I just just as a bit of self indulgent. I just want to pray for Johnny. So why don't we pray? Jesus, thank you so much for Johnny. Thank you that you love him, and that you care for him. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you that uh, in this moment, God, it's your privilege as we just take 30 seconds to pause uh, that you would direct your attention on Johnny, that you love him. And we pray your blessing on him. Pray that you would um, help him to settle, help him in his new job. And we pray uh, for just a thriving community. In Jesus' name, amen. So you've probably um, heard that passage before. It's pretty uh, familiar, but it takes on uh, a bit of a fuller picture in the context uh, of the whole book of Malachi. In the first few verses, we see God affirming his nature in the midst of the Israelite disillusionment and disobedience. He says, Hang on a minute, I, I haven't changed, but, but you, on the other hand, you have. I remain the same. But even in their corruption, he offers them an outstretched hand, saying, return to me, and I'll return to you. And so naturally, their response is, how? How do we come back to you? How do we return? And this is where it gets slightly uncomfortable, because he could have said anything. He could have said Repent. He could have said, uh, fast more, or pray more, or love one another better. But in that moment, God brings up their money. He brings up their giving and their generosity. You see, the Israelites had got into this ugly habit of being a bit stingy. Barely enough to tick the box and without reverence. And God says, if you want to return to me, 
Bring me the full offering. Don't be stingy. Don't withhold from me. Uh, And he even goes to the extent of saying that they're stealing from him. It's pretty full on. Talking about money, it's always a bit of an interesting one. It kind of has the same effect as when uh, a kid asks you where babies come from. Everyone um, goes a little bit sheepish and just looks to someone else to fill the silence. But there's, uh, there's a reason that God lists this as the way for Israel to come back to them. Our outlook on money and material possessions probably reveals more about our heart than anything else. When we prioritize giving and generosity, it's like a divine reordering for the soul. It helps us shift everything uh, to where it's meant to be, and it exposes our area of compromise and reorders our perspective all at the same time. So let's uh, dive into what the Bible has to say about giving. You up for it? Well, we're going to do it anyway. So um, uh, in my prep, I've listened to probably too much, um, but some of my favorite stuff has come from uh, a guy called John Mark Comer, and if you're interested in him, uh, I'll be using a lot of his stuff, so I recommend checking him out. Right then, if we want to understand God's heart, we may as well go all the way back to the start. You remember in verse 6 of our passage, it says, for I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God is telling his people I don't change. Anyone hearing this would know the stories of old. They'd know the history, uh, and it would be so ingrained in their culture. So what is this unchanging God like? Well, in the beginning, uh, before anything was made, there was God. And out of his generous and creative love, he made mankind with no compulsion, no ulterior motive, just loving overflow. We see that he made a beautiful planet and he gave it to man to steward. He made plants and trees and fruits and he gave them to mankind. What's more, he gave us his very likeness and he gave us unhindered, glorious friendship with himself. And we see that right from the beginning of time, God gave. The image we get here is that God is a generous giver and that we are his honored guests, that we're invited to enjoy him, to enjoy his love and to eat at the table that he's set for us. But this moment is short-lived though as the serpent slithers into the story and whispers doubt and lies, that God isn't who he says he is, that you can't trust him or his way of life, uh, that he has an agenda or that you must take life into your own hands and redefine good and evil for yourself. And you'll know what happens next. They fall to the temptation, but there's a powerful line in verse 6 that shows us the weight of the decision that they've made. It says, she took some of the fruit and ate. They took. Up until this point in the story, all we know is that God gave, God gave, God gave, he gave them plants, he gave them food, he gave them shelter. And then we get to this point where Eve took, and they took together. It's this juxtaposition where we know that God is a giving God, and then they choose in that moment to take. And this is a key point in the story of mankind, where there's a shift from receiving life as a gift from a kind father to taking life as something we deserve. In essence, 
This is the major problem for uh, all humanity, and every decision from here on out has its root in this moment. It's where they exchanged a heart of gratitude and trust for a heart of greedy self-reliance. These heart postures then weave themselves throughout the story of Scripture with two very different outcomes. Trusting God and responding in generous gratitude that leads to life. And trying to control and take hold of life for ourselves, which leads to death. Maybe you can relate to Adam and Eve here. Their motives could have been a few things. Believing that they deserved uh, more than what God was offering. Or doubting uh, God and somehow thinking that he might be holding out on them and wouldn't come through. But ultimately, it all manifests as them trying to take control uh, for a perceived sense of lack. And we often try and control things, don't we? We have a human tendency to live with closed fists rather than open hands. Whatever the nuanced motive, that control is a symptom of fear. Fear for the future or fear that we won't be able to provide for our families. Fear that we're not enough or fear that we'll go without. It's actually pretty incredible to see just how quickly we lean into that selfish taking mentality when we feel out of control or afraid. Just look at the, uh, the crazy cues for fuels we've had recently or the, uh, the bulk buying that happened at the start of COVID. Here with the Israelites in Malachi, we see God reminding the people as he would remind us today that he doesn't change. It's us who wander from his ways, not his faithfulness that runs out on us. To give and be generous is an antidote for the craving of control that snared Adam and Eve. It's an action that symbolizes a heart posture of gratitude and contentment over a need for control. Immediately uh, after Adam and Eve, we meet their sons, Cain and Abel, and they wanted to respond to God. Uh, They wanted to give an offering, and we read that Abel gave an offering of his first fruits. Now, they lived uh, in an agrarian kind of uh, farming culture, so your produce and your crops were your wealth. And this basically meant that when they harvested, they would portion uh, some of the first and the best, and they would give that to God. This is the theology, uh, start of the theology of giving in the Bible, which later turns to tithing. And as we read on, we find this confusing statement uh, that God was pleased with Abel's offering and not with Cain's. On the surface, uh, it sounds a bit harsh and a bit unfair, but if you look closely, the only difference between their offerings was that Abel gave of his first and best. You see, Abel gave from this heart posture that says, everything I have was given to me. It belongs to God. Jesus is, he's all about the heart. He's always about the heart. We read in the book of Samuel that the Lord doesn't look at the way things that we see them. People judge on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And he sees beyond uh, the filters and the grandiose gestures with piercing clarity. And there's a moment uh, in Luke that illustrates this in the context of giving. So I'm going to read from Luke uh, 11, 37 to 42. It says, as Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. 
So he went in and he took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that as he sat down to eat, uh, that, sorry, that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Then the Lord said to him, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Uh, fools, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor and you'll be clean forever. What sorrow waits for you, Pharisees, for you are careful even to tithe the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. So a bit of uh, a context for you here. The practice of giving your first and your best, uh, it became law in the story of Moses, and it was called tithing. Uh, and that basically just means giving 10% of your wealth back uh, to God. And it's this that Jesus draws our attention to here. It says that the religious leaders were tithing even from their herb gardens. Now, I'm not sure about you, but it's been a while since I've seen someone drop a few uh, leaves of basil in the basket on a Sunday. Um, It's not a particularly relatable example for us. But what Jesus is saying here is that the Pharisees were going overboard. Desperate for someone to see them, they would give over and above what was required to make themselves seem better. But Jesus saw straight through them. He's effectively saying, look, you can't buy me off. It's not about how much you give. Jesus isn't interested in the amount. He's more concerned about the posture of your heart. Do we respond to him with sincere gratitude, or are we ticking a box and hoping to be seen in the process? The point of giving back to God is to reposition ourselves to thank God for his provision, acknowledging that it all comes from him in the first place and that he is the provider and to trust him to continue to provide. The Pharisees, they lost sight of this and their hearts weren't submitted to God. They were playing a cultural game, trying to stay atop of the ladder of society. But Jesus says to them, you can polish the outside as much as you want, but the inside is filthy. He's not looking for mindless religion. He's looking for surrendered hearts. And if we pick up with uh, Cain and Abel again, one of the hallmarks of Abel's offering is that it was this uh, first fruit offering. Uh, We don't really have anything like that in our culture now, but it would be similar to getting your paycheck at the start of the month and giving a portion to God, not kind of waiting to see what happens after you've paid your bills, Uh, paid rent, got your groceries, and uh, been out for a few coffees. For Abel, this was a statement of gratitude and trust. Gratitude for all that was freely given to him, and trust that God would continue to provide. And it really was uh, a statement of trust. Remember, he's he's a farmer. So as he gives his first, he's essentially saying, I give this back to you in response to who you are. I'm going to trust that you're going to keep it raining so it keeps coming. Some uh, may see this as loading pressure onto God uh, and that we might be better to steward our resources uh, without giving back. 
But remember the passage in Malachi, verses eight and nine say, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, uh, there are two ways that you can look at this. Uh, the first is literal. The Israelites were holding, uh, were withholding, sorry, uh, what was God's. And so, literally, they, they were robbing from him. Uh, and the consequences for this in the Old Testament really was a curse in the form of plagues and failed crops, but it was something God had warned them about in the past. The other way you can look at this passage, uh, it looks a little bit deeper into the heart of God. They weren't just robbing God of resources. Remember, he doesn't need anything. He's God. He doesn't need our money. Um, But they were robbing him uh, of his desire and his duty to provide for them. As we read uh, the Bible, we learn about God's nature. He's loving, and he's kind, and he's generous. He is repeatedly referred to as uh, the shepherd, the one who guides us, and Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Remember the God that we saw in Genesis, the one who gave and gave and gave. God has always delighted in being our father, So much so that that's how we're taught to address him in the Lord's Prayer, our Father. When we withhold from giving, we deny God the opportunity to provide for us and to father us. Now, don't get this twisted. It's not to say that if we don't give, uh, he's not our Father. More that uh, in not giving, we miss out on an element of his kind care. When we take uh, life into our own hands, leaning on our own understanding, it can be like a curse of sorts as we trundle along trying to do life in our own strength. How many times have you heard the testimony, I was trying to do it all on my own and it didn't work? The paradox of giving is that as we give back to God in trust, it's his joyful delight to provide for us. Uh, a few years ago, I was part of the team that started the missional community in, in Boscombe, uh, and it was a bunch of us that decided to live, uh, live there and be interruptible and available to our neighbors, and it was probably the time in my life where I've had the least uh, disposable income. We were working uh, part-time to be present to the community, but we never went without. Every single, well, pretty much every day, we would have 20-plus people for dinner. It would be utter madness. Uh, But we just kept passing plates, kept passing them, and they kept getting filled up. And I think there was probably hundreds of miracles of provision that we didn't notice because it was so uh, regular. And uh, just for fun, I'll share with you my favorite giving story, uh, which happened, do you remember? You don't know what I'm going to say. Um, no, we used to gather together, um, just like we did yesterday. We would gather to worship, to pray, and then we would go and scatter uh, with the young, youth and young adults. Uh, it was a long time ago. And um, we went out in twos. And as we passed the petrol station, I just felt God saying, go and pay for that guy's petrol. Uh, but obviously, I was skint. And so I, to my shame, stood there and just kind of, waited to see how much he put in the tank. 
<laughs> and I was like, yeah, I can probably cover that. And so I went in and I was like, hey, man, Jesus loves you, you know, I just want to pray, pay for your petrol. And, uh, and he was like, cool, can I fill the tank? <laughs> and um, obviously, what, what do you do then? You can't say no, can you? You can't be like... Uh, so I was like, yeah, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. So he went and filled the tank uh, to the tune of 80 quid, uh, pre the uh, fuel prices going up. And I was like, you flipping better let me pray for you now. And he was like, oh, actually, I'm already a Christian. And I was like... <laughs> Just the... Uh, the the hilarious nature of God uh, who was probably trying to teach me something. But God loves to provide for us as we surrender to him. He's a dad. He loves to look after us. And this is what he promises. Look at verses 10 to 12. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. This God that doesn't change and never breaks his promises, promises dares us to test him. I'm sure uh, at one point or another, uh, we've all been worried about our finances, maybe like me when your bank account was empty after paying for petrol. Um, and some of you, you'll be in that spot now. But God's word to us is trust me. Trust me. When we go on the journey, uh, when we journey the adventure of giving to God, his promise to us is that he will pour down blessing until there's no need. And here is what it's all unto, verse 12. That all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The desire of God is that by living life his way and surrendering to him, we might be blessed. It's actually that we would be blessed. God wants to bless us. But that as we're blessed, those around us might begin to ask questions. That's what happened yesterday, right? As we close, I believe God is inviting us, as he did the Israelites, to return to him. To remember who he is, that he's our father who delights to provide for us. But he's also asking us to give, to be a generous people. It's funny, all the things Jesus asks us to do, to, to pray, to fast, to give, to tell people about him, they can seem a bit like a chore when we lose perspective of who God is. But the reality is, these practices help to reorder our souls so that we might enjoy closeness with Jesus. Doing life his way, it just works. So when he says it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's not like some nice slogan we just bung on a, on a fridge magnet. It's, it means that there's actual blessing, that there's blessing uh, in giving rather than receiving. And wasn't uh, yesterday amazing? We practiced generosity together as a family. We bought people shopping. We paid for families to have a round of crazy gold together. We made hundreds, I made, hundreds of coffees 
We painted faces. We cleaned the town center. We litter picked the wreck and Churchill Gardens. We paid for people's parking, handed out flowers, blessed families in need, gave out drinks and sweets, all in generous response to what Jesus has given us. As a church, we're not a goodwill project. Our motive runs much deeper than doing things out of the goodness of our own hearts. We give because Jesus has given us everything, and it's our delight to give in turn. And that's what I think God is inviting us into today, is to to remember who he is, to remember that actually he is a father who delights in giving. And actually by practicing giving, it helps us to be close to him because when we give it, it assumes something, doesn't it? If I give to you, I'm assuming, uh, I'm like remembering that God has given to me first and I'm giving out of that. And it reorders our, our perspective.